Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, welcome. So glad to have you here with us. If you like what we're doing, please hit like and subscribe. It's a passive gesture that goes a long way. If you are a returning listener or a subscriber, welcome back. Okay. Show these new guys around. Interesting show today. Um, our guest and I have spoken before uh, via social media. Um, and he hit me up and presented to me something that I, I didn't know about. Maybe you guys listening to the show uh, definitely know about. But it's Argentinia's... Argentinia's... <laughs> Argentina's relation with anti-semitism and also um their relationship with israel which i thought was was very interesting today marked yet another day marred by tragedy in the israel-palestine conflict this time hamas soldiers reportedly killed 21 idf combatants this will surely be used by Israel as more justification for the brutal slaughter in response to the attacks on October 7th. Israel claims that almost 1,200 civilians, soldiers, and foreign nationals died that day. Their bombing campaign, which many nations throughout the world have deemed genocidal, have taken the life of an estimated 30,000 Palestinians. Israel claims that the Hamas attacks and any support of Palestinians living in Gaza is an act of aggression against Israel's right to exist and is anti-Semitic, often citing the Hamas attacks as the most deadly since the Holocaust. But how true is that statement? Our guest today has been writing about the death of thousands of Jews living in Argentina during the dictatorship of 1976 to 84. This mass slaughter of dissidents and ethnic slaughter of Jews was supported by then-President of Israel, Menachem Begin. From our guest's article on the atrocities of the dictatorship, in her kerchief holding up a sign with the cipher 30,000 in marker, Vera Yarich tells the Chancellor of Germany, I am an Italian Jew. I was a child in Italy. In, I was a child in Italy 12 years ago when they introduced the racial laws, but we saved ourselves by going to Argentina. Her grandfather, she explains, was less lucky. He stayed and was taken to Auschwitz, and there was no and there is no grave. Many years later, my daughter, 13 years old, was taken to a camp where she was tortured, died, and there is no grave for her either. These are analogies. History repeats itself. The good things also repeat themselves. Not only tragedies, among those things that repeat there is revisionism, the denial. In Germany, in many of the countries that were occupied, there were those who denied the Holocaust and still do. And here in Argentina, revisionism is happening under this government. People who say there were no 30,000. Well, we want to know the exact number and only they can tell us the military regime know exactly how many and they know the facts about the children who were transferred to other families history doesn't repeat itself but it sure does rhyme human rights supporters in argentina estimate the toll at 30,000 but the official revisionism of president mauricio macri's ruling pro party tends to deny that approximation altogether 
Dario Perfetto, the ex-minister of culture who resigned because of protests by Argentinian artists, notoriously stated repeatedly there were at most a few thousand disappearances caused by technical circumstances. What were those technical circumstances that would have caused thousands of disappearances? Um, yes, um, our, our guest is telling me that was an old article and the new president is Millie. Yet yeah, we know. I know. Calm down. We're coming for you! Already. The show's just started and it's coming for me in the, in the private guest host chat. Don't worry. And I don't, you know what? I, I didn't ask how to properly pronounce your last name. So I'm going to say it wrong and you can correct me. Please welcome our guest, Arturo De Simone. Did I say your name right? Yes, yeah, you say it's fine. Yes. Um, I was like, is it Moe? Is it Monet? Do I say it like an Italian? Ah, like an Italian. <laughs> I suppose it's a, it's a mix of Spanish and Italian anyway, but yeah. Yeah, every time I every time I say it, I was I was trying to practice it, and ah. I didn't think to I didn't think to try to you know hit you up beforehand, which would have made the most sense, and say how do I say oh. this right? So I was like I kept saying it and I kept doing this as I said it. So I will stop being racist for one minute. Okay. Um, now you were born in '84, not in Argentina, but you were born after, like kind of right as the dictatorship ends in Argentina. Your father actually left or fled Argentina because of the dictatorship. Um, did he ever talk to you about that? Did you ever ask questions about that as a young person growing up? Uh, yes, uh, I did ask questions, uh, but it wasn't very necessary to ask. He just talked about it a lot and he lived in that um, era, basically. To him, it in his memory, it never never ended. Uh, he he was permanently thinking of talking about that. <clears throat> Did he never go back? Uh, only for the only for the deaths of my grandparents, only mm. for the funerals of my grandparents mm. on his side. Yes. Mm. Can you give us a quick? kind of history um, of that dictatorship, how it uh, came to be and, you know, how it, how long it lasted. Yeah, you don't have to go into the, you know, that, that's a big history, but if you can kind of give us a brief rundown. That uh, right. Well, yes, I, I talked on the podcast of, I think your friend, uh, Douglas Lane. Uh, we are not friends. Sorry. Um, I'm just kidding. He's coming to right. visit at the end of the month. Doug Lane is a very good friend. Well, <laughs> Right. Um, so that conversation was uh, the background of, mm. you know, Peronism and uh, the, the phenomenon of uh, Millet uh, in Argentina. So I had to give the whole background of Peronism to explain what is anti-Peronism. And so uh, the dictatorship of uh, from 1976 to 1983 
was the last of a very long series of military regimes that came and, and, and went in the country. Um, this last one was uh, declared itself anti-Peronist as a few previous dictatorships, but it did a, a, a coup. Um, it, it committed a regime change in the modern uh, current contemporary you know, parlance regime change against uh, the government of um, uh, Isabella Perón, the widow of mm. the famous uh, populist Perón, uh, which was a democratically elected uh, government that had many aspects of a regime, including um, the Triple uh, A, the anti Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance, which was a kind of um, death squads intelligence agency that Isabella Perón uh, wanted to have in order to track down young left-wing Peronists who she felt were corrupting Peronism. And at some point, the military dictators who disliked her mm. uh, concluded, well, this woman you know, wants to do repression. Uh, we know how to do that better. Uh, than her, and we have our own agenda and our own ideology. And so um, Isabella Perón was the, the setup or the architecture of what overthrew her, which was the, the junta uh, of 19, uh, uh, the junta of the late 70s, which was the first implementation of what's called, uh, one of the first implementations of what's called uh, neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. in South America, but that was a very new ideology. And the, the gentlemen of the junta uh, were not very new people. They were uh, from this military culture that was still, they were trying out these new ideas in this uh, laboratory in America was becoming with Plan Condor. Uh, the, the U.S. interests in the continents. Um, however, their ideas were very old ones, such as, uh, um, well, uh, I guess what's relevant to focus on, mm -hmm. other than anti-Peronism, which I talked about last time, mm -hmm. which is anti-populism, um, what's relevant to talk about in this context, uh, given the title of the episode, is that they were very much Germanophiles. So they adored um, the Germanic uh, military tradition uh, from Prussia to onwards up to and including the Nazis. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I was actually reading in some, and thank you very much for the reading. I actually asked for, for reading and Arturo was like, oh, reading, you say? And then he sent me, you know, a slew of of links. Um, but I was surprised to read that they were even embracing Nazi imagery in yes. uniform as well. Um, not in sign or symbols. Because I was reading some of the people that were tortured, uh, especially the the Jewish people that were tortured. I know I'm jumping I'm jumping ahead a little bit here. Yes. Um, they they had images of 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 Nazi symbols and things like that. In the way they, what they yes. Found. Yes, there are many testimonies, um, <clears throat> including a very important uh, 
testimony by Miriam Lewin, uh, mm. who was 27 when I think at the age when she gave her testimony to the uh, Human Rights uh, Tribunal, uh, in which she uh, talked about offices in which there was uh, a swastika uh, hanging from a, a wall. Sometimes she, you know, and it was very interesting. Uh, she makes me, th it made me think of how, you know, Jewish people from the old days, the older generation, like my grandmother's generation, would speak uh, because, um, you know, like the, the last thing they would mention, you know, they wouldn't immediately start talking about anti Semitism, but the mm -hmm. last thing they would mention would be like, oh, and by the way, there was a swastika hanging. Let me just clarify: there's a swastika Jesus. hanging from the wall. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and of course, um, it was also the literature that that circulated um, at the time. Uh, many Argentine generals were uh, fans of a certain uh, theorist of war, and who they had read in translation. Uh, who spoke of the national being, uh, and of course, uh, Rommel's ideas were very popular. So, um, for example, today, if I would, you know, speak to an, an older person who had served in the army, um, uh, he would. It's common to hear that such a person express to you, well, you know, the army liked Rommel. Uh, but not for his ideology, but for his strategy. So they criticized the blitzkriegs, blitzkriegs of Hitler because mm -hmm. these were very messy. And Rommel was um, was uh, rather precise. <laughs> so that's like their, that's their, it's a common to hear that kind of phrase, that, that kind of explanation. Um, yes, and uh, there were also important testimonies by the journalist Jacobo Timmerman that's when also the outside world uh, began to notice something was uh, eerie or fishy and, and anti-Semitic uh, perhaps uh, was with the scandals around the journalists who was very prominent at the time, Jacobo uh, Timmerman, who uh, was very tough and unstoppable, so he kept climbing his way out of situations to break uh, some kind of reports to the outside world about what was happening to him and how he was being interrogated. And he also talked about, um, I mean, let me just clarify that mm -hmm. because you mentioned ethnicity in the introduction. Mm -hmm. uh, ethnicity was not a prime motivator of this, I get distracted by the, all the messages I see. Oh, don't look at the chat. It's just very dangerous. I see a lot of cliches about Argentines. Also. Yeah, don't, don't, um, don't do it. Yeah. It's the void. Okay. Don't stare into the void. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, where was I? Um, oh, there, oh, there. Ethnicity. Uh, ethnic yes. So ethnicity was not a prime motivator of the coup of the regime. The, the prime motivation was to. Um, uh, Transform the economy, establish total conformism, mm. and uh, um, to destroy uh, dependency towards armed struggle as well as the tendency towards any kind of organized social struggle or, or network of solidarity in the broader society. It was the, this 
regime was not about Jewishness or anti-Jewishness. Uh, I just point out there was a very impossible to ignore, uh, especially for people of that generation who happened to either be Jewish or close to Jewish people, it's impossible to ignore the anti-Semitic streak in, in all of this and impossible to ignore that there was a disproportionate uh, number of victims who happened to be uh, Jewish or from the Argentine Jewish community, which is the most prominent one in Latin America. Uh, we have a reputation. Really? So, oh, yes. so, in, so in Latin America, the largest Jewish uh, dias diaspora would be in Argentina? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yes. And do they have kind of a prominent position in society? Would that be one of the reasons why they were kind of picked out? Um, well, you know, in, in Buenos Aires, you also have Jewish taxi drivers. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it's not a place where, it's not like how I, how I picture the United States from people I've met where Jewish people are exclusive, are usually very in banking, protected in, in suburbia or in the mm -hmm. middle and upper middle classes. But uh, in Argentina, you have uh, Jewish people of all social classes, but we are, or Jewish people are very, very represented in the intellectual professions, absolutely. Okay. Uh, and for uh, that reason, of course, the, the regime of the late 70s was a regime that sought to paralyze thought itself. And you weren't supposed to think at all uh, uh, unless you were thinking the right thoughts. And, and so, um, of course, that had something to do uh, with the disproportionate number of Jewish people or just was, or, or, and it also excited this anti-Semitic tendency, which was very deeply entrenched. And so my, my reason for um, uh, bringing this up in the light of October 7th is not to, not to compete with the number of dead, of course, yeah. or not to do any morbid competition of you know, counting the dead in massacres or anything like that. Um, nor to claim that it was Menachem Begin, who, or the Israeli prime minister, who was uh, a, a, at the forefront of this either, but rather it's a, I think it's a necessary thought experiment um, uh, to, you know, to ask, you know, what, what do we consider the largest attack after the Second World War? Um, uh, because if you look at the numbers, indeed, uh, if you add them up, it's at least 2,000, at least. And that's not counting, for example, other regimes in the region uh, and or cases that we can't, that we don't yet know all the details about in Argentina and not counting all the exiles also uh, that were produced by this episode. Uh, I mean, in, the, in the, one of the articles you sent me in Haritz, which is, you know, an Israeli... Uh, publication, um, they cited around 3,000 dead, and you know, give or take, and that would be over double the amount of what Israel is claiming um, right now with the October 7th attacks. And one of the things that they keep saying is like, this is the biggest, you know, atrocity since the Holocaust, which is what you brought up to me in that in that uh, yes, in that yes. message. Um, so I do think it's important to examine this and, and ask the question, why is this kind of just forgotten and no one really talks about it? 
Yeah, just a, a tiny, you know, a, a correction. It, I think they said three thousand disappeared, okay. um, but which is like ten percent of the estimated thirty thousand mm-hmm. disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the because what happened in Argentina was that people were forcibly disappeared without a trace, and a third of those people had um, relatives who immediately after the dictatorship registered the complaints. Mm-hmm. Uh, because those people were sure enough that democracy had come and that they wouldn't, they wouldn't be consequences. But 30,000 people were systematically, an estimated 30,000, we don't know the exact number, were systematically erased like from the, from the country, from the face of the earth without a trace, and their relatives uh, or friends or companions knew uh, that these people were apprehended or were gone, but very hard to prove, to, to find the remains also. But uh, indeed, uh, and uh, I thank you for uh, being so open and for bringing me onto the, the show. And it is indeed relevant, yes. No, no, uh, again, thank you for uh, for contacting me and, and agreeing to come on, you know. Uh, it, I get the whole disappeared thing. I read an article or no, I read a post today. I'm looking for more information on it. Um, recently in Mississippi, they oh. found behind, I don't know if you saw this, behind a prison, over 600 bodies. Oh. And one of the bodies that was found was a young man that was hit by a police officer, like his car hit this young man. The young man actually had ID on him. Ah. You know, the protocol in the States is if someone gets hit, and there's ID, you go to the house where their ID is and say, hey, are you the family member? Can you identify said body, blah, 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 blah. There is cemeteries throughout the United States that are filled with John Doe's. Um, that happens, right? But this was not a John Doe. And... I guess a few of these people, I don't know how many had been, you know, hit by police officers or they don't know how they were all killed um, or, or perished. Um, I feel like Argentina has that same kind of history in it where you have these 30,000. We're just using a number that that's an estimate. We don't know exactly how many people um, are missing from from the dictatorship yes. and, and where they are. Uh, precisely um they do they do now and then find some um remains uh however um in the case of these john does uh, i would just uh clarify that this these were not episodes of police brutality of a low level officer trying to hide that mm-hmm. he killed someone which is horrible enough mm-hmm. but rather these were this was a very systematic um plan from the top down within the, the state. It was very public, from my understanding. Yes, uh, absolutely. absolutely. Yes. Um, I definitely get Argentina and Chile a little confused, and I'm not trying to sound dismissive of the brutality, but which regime was throwing people out of planes? Argentina invented that. Uh, and it's a strange coincidence that Alfredo Astiz who was the, uh, they called him the angel of death, uh, was his nickname. Mm-hmm. 
among other nicknames, uh, when he uh, escaped to South Africa in order to for some form of immunity from uh, human rights attention, uh, from the attention of human rights organizations, then within a very short time, in South, the South African regime started to do that as well. So that suggests that maybe he brought the practice with him to South Africa. But it, it, it began in Argentina, uh, this, this practice of throwing a live person in the, out, of a, out of an airplane. Is the sound bothering or should I close the window? No, 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 you're fine, you're fine. I can't, I can't really hear it, you're fine. Um, why do you think Menachem Begin uh, supported the dictatorship uh, with, with uh, weapons? Uh, yes, <clears throat> this is a very complex question. Uh, I mean, it's a very complex history. Of why uh, Israel uh, came around to make this choice uh, to support uh, to to trade in weapons with uh, these dictatorships, I, I recently sent a, and received a, an email from Etal Mark, a, a researcher in uh, in Israel, who has devoted a lot of time to publicizing this, he created an important petition to, for declassifying uh, documents about this. Um, well, uh, Israel, uh, this began after the United States with Jimmy Carter declared uh, an arms embargo. So just before Jimmy Carter, uh, Kissinger said to Videla and other generals, uh, whatever you do, uh, uh, hurry up uh, and, and, and get it done now, because uh, as soon as this guy Carter comes along, he'll make it more complicated for you to, to get it done. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Carter, at some point, after the revelations of atrocities, um, declared a weapons embargo. Um, at which point Israel, um, Israeli generals and politicians had visited Argentina at different uh, stages of the Videla regime uh, as esteemed uh, guests also with, presence, with the presence of the, um, the prominent mainstream uh, Jewish organization, the Daya, which uh, has earned a very bad name uh, because of that. Uh, recently, they apologized for their role in the dictatorship. I mean, that's not why they didn't earn a bad name by bringing over Israeli politicians. But mm -hmm. uh, they didn't. They did not bring over Israeli politicians. But they were, of course, very present at uh, encounters and visits by Israeli Israeli generals, Israeli functionaries, uh, because. Um, um, for one, for one thing, uh, Israel, uh, at least according to Thomas Friedman, <laughs> <laughs> who uh, he has a very curious old article in the New York Times where he says Israel had to practice Uzi diplomacy because Israel didn't have many industries um, or resources. So, uh, in order to make sure that they could preserve some good relations with other countries, they relied on uh, weapons trade. And then Friedman, I think in the classic 
incident of him getting the world upside down, he says, I, I have the quote here. I might have it uh, in front of me. Um, let me see. Um, no. Uh, well, in any case, he says that because the Israelis were concerned about uh, the plight of Jews in under regimes and pariah states like Argentina, maybe they thought that doing Uzi diplomacy, meaning selling weapons mm -hmm. uh, eagerly to these regimes, would help as a bargaining chip or get their foot in the door in order to uh, negotiate a safe exit for some of the potential victims, since it was well aware, of course, that uh, a great number of Jewish people were imprisoned, disappeared, their families um, were, were looking for them. However, if that were the case, and not just Friedman getting the world exactly upside down, then it failed. Uh, uh, but I, I, I'm not, I don't believe that was the purpose. According to um, <clears throat> Uh, Gerardo Leibner, an Uruguayan Jewish scholar who lives in Israel, who I think was in exile, um, he's, he has a more interesting uh, thesis about this. Uh, okay, what is his? Yeah. So he says that after 1967 war, the Israelis uh, faced uh, uh, a dilemma because uh, on the one hand, they, their intelligence people were very well aware of the character of regimes in Argentina, Paraguay, uh, which were obviously philo-Nazi, uh, Uruguay, uh, uh, the Uruguayan regime. And so Israel had uh, refused also a request uh, from uh, an Uruguayan right-wing uh, politician just before the regime who asked the Israelis for a blueprint of their prison near Gaza mm. uh, so that they could build a similar blueprint for their local terrorists. And the Israelis were very suspicious of this because they did not trust the character of these regimes, which had given harbor to Nazis, uh, which had... Uh, a false neutrality, if any, uh, position uh, that was not openly pro-Nazi during the Second World War. And, uh, you know, there was the Eichmann case of Eichmann in Argentina. And so the Israelis did not like these people for good reason. But after the 1967 Israeli-Arab War and after the United Nations uh, began to condemn Israel and began to be much more supportive of third worldist uprisings around the world. Uh, I think that was the UN at its most radical in its history, hmm. uh, or at its most progressive, you know, to use a less pejorative term. The Israelis decided that they had a new enemy, and the new enemy was third worldism. Third worldism uh, sympathized with Arafat sympathized with the PLO um, and, and with Pan-Arabism, with Nasser's Egypt, uh, all of whom were opposed to Israel. So the Israelis uh, had to then make this, uh, uh, they felt, this is their perspective. I don't mm -hmm. agree that they had to make this choice. I think that simply ending the occupation of, uh, would have been much better uh, 
Um, but uh, the decision that third worldism was the new enemy and the fact that um, uh, the resistance movements in, uh, in Argentina, uh, guerrilla movements, populist movements, uh, either resembled or admired uh, uh, some Arab uh, movements uh, also uh, increased this uh, hostility. And so basically, um, there was an encounter with, um, I think I remember his name correctly, Ram Mirgat, who was then the Israeli ambassador uh, in Argentina. He met with a very notoriously anti-Semitic uh, general called Albano Hardinge, who, uh, if you mispronounce it, it's uh, Hardinge. Uh, Albano Hardinge was the Minister of Interior, so at the forefront of supervising torture. And Ram Nirgad said um, he, had, he had two priorities, two concerns. First of all, uh, whether uh, Argentina would get its voting records straight in the UN and in other international organizations uh, and be more supportive of the Israelis, uh, Israeli geopolitical interests. The second concern, of course, not saying this was necessarily second place, but of course, uh, every Jewish organization in Argentina was under enormous pressure from families, particularly from Jewish families, of course, who will resort to Jewish organizations, uh, supposed representation, uh, to do something about the, you know, their, their, their missing children, their imprisoned children, mm -hmm. um, and Albano's, Albano Hardinge's response was those people are as good as dead. Oh. Um, yes, and uh, at some points, um, I'm trying to, to answer various points. I know, I know there's a lot There's a lot to, I'm yeah. sorry I'm asking such broad questions, no, but no, this, no. this is kind of no, one no. of those topics that, again, as much as going on between Israel and Palestine and as much as going on is about support for said conflict, you know, here you have this situation where thousands of people are missing. Let's just not put a number on it. Let's just put it tens of thousands of people are missing. Right. And a lot of them children. And there's a reason why people love to center children on any sort of tragedy. Um, why the children in Argentina? Because they seemed very young. And I'm like, what were the kids doing that would necessitate having to to snatch them up and put them in, in torture camps? Well, I had I had plans to. I saw an American film with a scene where someone says, everybody, everybody fucking hates poetry. And so I had planned then to read the poem at the end of the show. Oh, I was um, going to read the poem at the end of the show. I was going to beat you to it. There's no way you were taking that shine from me, buddy. Okay. <laughs> Cause, oh, oh dear. <laughs> no, but you know I, what? You know what? How about this? You read it in Spanish and then I'll translate it in English. Uh, the thing is, I translated it into English. I'm God. the first one who translated it into English, Damn. and I've been I I I revised it because there were some things that were that I had to fix, correct somewhat. 
but I think this is a good example of to, mm-hmm. to answer your question. Of course, sure. most of the people who were persecuted were not really children. They were not children. They were teenage, between teenage years and much older. Uh, but there were children, of course. And there were also children, uh, those born in captivity. And mm-hmm. there was also a concern of the regime. This is, does not just apply to Jewish people, of course, it applies to the entire yeah. scope of society. But since this is the topic of this evening, I'll use a, a Jewish example. Um, the, the poet Juan Gelman, uh, who's uh, of Jewish origins, but not especially concerned. Ju- Judaism is a theme in his writing, but he was mostly just a leftist. Uh, uh, he did not meet his granddaughter until one year before uh, he died because mm-hmm. she was the child of his captive, disappeared son and daughter-in-law. And so the ideology of the regime uh, was to make sure that the children of subversives, they called them, would be reassigned to good military families or pro-military or Catholic families or decent families. And so the child of that couple was somehow ended up in Uruguay. And today she's a politician in Uruguay. And mm-hmm. DNA testing um, reunited the granddaughter and the poet, the grandfather, uh, Juan Gelman, who is, I think, uh, one of the major poets of the country. Um, but it took, it took many, many years until he was almost dead. Uh, and she's a politician today in Uruguay, Mar- Mar- uh, Macarena Gelman, or Gelman. In the United States, you say yeah. Gelman. Gelman. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, the, 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 the poem that we are uh, dueling over who's kind of reciting <laughs> is is by, is, well, you quoted her mother, Vera yes. Harach, or, yeah. Yeah, or Jarach, uh, her mother who fled from Italy. And um, uh, the poem that I, that's one of us will read, maybe by you, the you can day. You can, you know what, you look, look, you know what, you have hair, so the, the person with the hair wins. You have, and you have a beard. So you're winning the hair war and the facial hair war. So, because of those two things, you, you should go ahead and, and read this. Uh-huh. Um, now or later? Uh, do, do you feel comfortable reading it now? Sure. Or do you want to save it for... I mean, it it's a, it well, moved me as I'm doing my the, the reading and stuff and going over the script for the show. And I read the poem. I was like, that's heavy for a kid to write that at like 12, 13 years old. That's heavy. Yeah. Well, it, it shows the kind of how, you know, that developed uh, her social consciousness was. And it's a good illustration of what the dictatorship was seeking to stamp out and to destroy. Uh, so here it's the poem, <clears throat> A Place by Franca, Franca Harach, 12 years old. In the morning, I walk by sites surrounded by walls, tall, gray, sad, filthy walls with advertising billboards, the kind that say, vote for this or that candidate on the blue list. One day I peek inside, it's a slum. People, more people, 
dressed in cheap fabrics, deuded of happiness. A girl offers me her lemons, a hundred for a dozen by me. She's 13 years old, more or less my age. A noisy warehouse with rats, with dirt, sepulchral microbes. Here is a site enclosed by walls, sullied with human crimes that are entirely our own. So this is the, the poem of this, this kid uh, who has a, something she would do after school. Mm -hmm. uh, she would go with younger people who are slightly older than her to shanty towns to, to help. Uh, in Argentina, social movements typically do this. They go to the shanty, they send people from the uh, so people you know, young middle class leftists or, or mm -hmm. politically motivated people they, uh, who are uh, usually from the middle class or whatever they go to the shanty towns to 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 help um, uh, with education with uh, literacy training uh, to do social activities to bring goods to 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 uh because the you know the welfare states was never fully um, mm -hmm. constructed in argentina and so social movements uh do social activity of the in the slums often and she would do this and so she this is the poem shows her uh, you know developing and uh and uh and it, it's it's cultural awareness or social consciousness that the, the regime saw as especially problematic. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know because I have. I'm wearing these headphones. Yeah. And I'm Can you hear Seeing me? myself. I don't know if I, if the recital, if I, if everything was clear. Yeah. Yes. Ah. Yes. We can hear you crystal clear. Ah, yeah. 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 So. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think that that is an illustration uh, of what I, I mean. Yeah, maybe you can read it it's, at the end of the show if you want to. No, it's it's uh it's in reading that poem and and reading more because again you know we're talking about quote unquote disappeared people. Um, I did find it like I said like I said before you know fascinating that so many you know young people were were getting snatched up and and um it is interesting. You know, and and I'm sorry I interrupted you, kind of explaining some of the rationale why Israel would want to support um, Argentina at the time. But another issue that you probably were getting to was Israel was not doing all that well financially um, right. at this moment as well. Um, at least that, yeah. I mean, that was uh, Thomas Friedman's point, but it, it, just because Thomas Friedman said it doesn't mean it's not true. Um, so, uh, indeed, Israel. I mean, it's not the uh, only point, right? <laughs> there's, there's more yeah. to it than that, but yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the, the Israelis were uh, very consciousness of their isolation having increased at the time because of the 1967 war, but also, of course, Israel before the 1967 war um, was had economic inflationary problems, kind of. Kind of look like Argentina with the inflation, 
except mm-hmm. without, of course, Israel does not have the resources, natural resources that Argentina has. Uh, but uh, indeed, uh, um, munitions, uh, arms factories were, you know, I mean, this is the banal part, but there are many other parts of this problem that are much more problematic morally and otherwise. But the banal part of the problem was that a major employer in Israel at the time were weapons factories and they needed exports because the domestic market was not enough and they didn't want to to fire uh, all these workers. Uh, but um, the, that's there, there are much more. There's a lot of deception, and there are many documents that are not yet declassified as to the nature and the extent of the Israeli-Argentine relations. But what, there's there's no doubt whatsoever, however, uh, that there was awareness because, of course, families um, immediately reported all of this to the Jewish aid agency, to an organization like the Daya. A uh, famous uh, May Plaza mother, Renee Eppelbaum, who is Jewish, mm-hmm. all three of her, you know, children were disappeared, were annihilated, basically. Um, like Anka Harach, the, the girl who wrote a poem, was annihilated, mm-hmm. and she said it's. She told um, various figures like the Jewish human rights activist, the dissident Hermann Schiller. She told him that it haunts her. She said, it haunts me or it torments me to think that an is, an, a weapon, a Jewish weapon, might have killed one or all three of my Jewish children. Mm. Uh, and uh, activists like Hermann Schiller uh, went to Israel. Uh, Israel had a very complex position because. Uh, there were refugees um, going from Argentina, a small number, relatively small, definitely, uh, you know, uh, dwarfed by the number of people who didn't make it out, uh, mm. a few hundreds uh, who went to um, Israel and survived. Uh, uh, but they were all, uh, of course, very concerned about um, the situation. And so when Hermann Schiller went to Israel, he confronted uh, a functionary, an ambassador. Uh, I, I haven't memorized the name, but this uh, political functionary got very angry about him, at him in a debate and said, you know, uh, it's not true what the, our enemies are saying. We only supplied Argentina with 13% of it. Its armament, armament set of its arms needs mm-hmm. during this period, and and Schiller says that reply for him, which he sees as a defense, says it all. Uh, and so, uh, and Schiller had to he founded uh, an alternative Jewish organization because he and Rabbi Marshall Meyer, who was persecuted by the regime. Uh, was also kicked out of conferences such as the World Jewish Congress, uh, I think, conference in Brazil. He was kicked out by uh, the Argentine, official Argentine Jewish leadership and representation at the time, uh, Mario Gorenstein. 
because Mayer and Schiller, they were very critical that um, uh, the official uh, organizations like the Daya, who have recognized that they faltered, they recognized it late, they recognized it, I think, last year or this year. Um, they've apologized, but they said they, are not, they, are, they were downplaying disappearances and asking people uh, to be quiet, to not be too loud about the disappeared uh, Jewish people, uh, because um, remember how angry uh, many political forces were at the Jewish community after the Eichmann trial, after Eichmann mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was, uh, I think, rightly abducted uh, by the Israelis um, um, and taken to be put on trial. Um, and so there was a, a kind of consensus among a certain class elements. Uh, the Argentine Jewish community has all layers of class. Uh, and so among a certain part of uh, society within the Jewish community, there was a consensus that uh, uh, after the kidnapping of Eichmann, there was uh, supposedly a wave of anti-Semitism. This is true. There was a very angry and influential, violent terrorist group in Argentina, a nationalist group called Taquara. Uh, one of the members of Taquara is now in the government. He is, I think, the Attorney General of the Treasury for Milei, uh, Rodolfo Barra. And Ugh. Taquara was an openly neo-Nazi movement that awesome. uh, believed in street fights as mm -hmm. a form of justice. Uh, street fights mostly against Jewish groups. Wow. Um, and Taquara, um, yes, and uh, and so after Eichmann in the 60s, sorry, I, I, I don't remember the exact date, uh, but 90s? during the 60s, they had yeah. many activities mm. in which they would come to, for example, they'd, they'd organize a conference in a in park talking about how the Eichmann kidnapping was an attack on the, on the sovereignty of Argentina. Wow. So and and this was very saw that as a very grave injustice, and in the beginning they were mostly young men from the upper classes, uh, but as time went by, they began to be more open to people who the movement split in two because there was a more popular side and the side of Peronism, and then there was a more elite, more Catholic side, and. Um, there was a very interesting uh, study by a professor, I think he's a professor in Tel Aviv. His name is Ranan Rhein, and he got very interested in Argentina and in Peronism and in vindicating almost the figure of Peron, though I don't think one should romanticize Peron too much. But uh, Ranan Rhein uh, points out a very curious, ironic twist of history. Um, so during the 60s, there were all these strikes between armed militant gangs like Taquara, uh, and they would attack uh, uh, Jewish communities. To then, for the ideology of 
with Aquara, any Judaism was synonymous with socialism or communism, mm-hmm. uh, vice versa. Uh, and, and they use the term Zionism to refer to that. Uh, and so uh, uh, Jewish groups then start to write letters to people in Israel, to uh, Holocaust survivors who then fought in the, in the, in the Israeli army, in, in the Haganah, to come to Argentina to give them lessons in self-defense or whatever, to, so they could fight Takwara. And, and, and because Taquara would attack their parents or whoever. And then Taquara, uh, it was always a fascist movement, but Argentina is a huge mess. Argentina is like a big multi-layered poisoned cake. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge mess of contradictions. So uh, evolved and changed this ideology and and began to be more supportive of Peronism. At the same time, there were young uh, Jewish people who had also taken these self-defense courses and had fought with Taquara in the streets when they were young in the 60s. They mm-hmm. uh, began to gravitate towards Peronism, which was the major form of Argentine secular nationalism, populism, anti-imperialism. And then during the dictatorship, they both ended up in the same organization because they they put aside the question of you know Taquara for a moment put aside anti-Semitism, the Jewish groups for a moment put aside the Jewish identity, and they were in the same organization fighting against the regime. And from there they ended up being apprehended, and so they were in the same concentration camps together, uh, uh, which was you know. It's just one layer of absurdity. Uh, and, and at the same time, Israel was having uh, overly cordial relations mm-hmm. uh, with the regime that was torturing all these people together. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so so in offices at some point on the wall. So this is a complete and total insanity. Uh, Insane. And, and in closing, as we're wrapping up on the hour, I do want to once again say thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me. See, that hour flew right by. I know it's late where you are. Um, why? Oh, wow. Um, why? Hmm, how can I phrase this? I had it written down somewhere. Um, I guess I'll make it a two-parter. Why do you feel it's important to tell this story? of uh this part of the argentinian dictatorship and is the new regime in argentina going to do a math coupled with the regime in israel um are they doing a masterful job of kind of covering up this history or even creating a revisionist history of this time um no, uh, the Macri presidency was much more effective, actually, at damaging uh, historical records or trying to taint uh, the contents of museums and libraries and so on. Uh, the current regime, the current government, is not taken seriously enough. So tomorrow there's a huge nationwide strike, even though the government said strikes are outlawed and, and um, they don't have the clout for that, and it's already a cause of scandal that there are two very prominent, there's at least one vocal anti-Semite in the Mac- Millet 
administration, somebody who mm-hmm. appeared on a podcast talking about international Zionism, conspiracies against Argentina. Um, uh, and Robara, uh, it's been exposed that he was a member, that he was crucial when he was a young man in the cover up of the murder of a young Jewish socialist in the 60s by the name of Alterman. And mm. he was justice minister in the 90s when he mishandled the bombing of that, the, the investigation as to the bombing of the Aya Jewish Center, which claimed about 85 uh, lives, uh, a terrorist bombing, uh, in which uh, it is suspected that uh, uh, both local uh, fascist elements as well as um, international terrorists uh, uh, in the Middle East were involved. Uh, and so he, he, he botched an investigation twice. Uh, and I think the, the relevance, um, I mean, I, in a few minutes, it's hard to, I underestimated uh, our, because I want to also talk about the, how the continuity uh, of, of this in the 1990s, um, mm. But I guess we can't go over the hour. Or... We can go over the hour. The the uh, what you know the great thing about having your own show is that you can constantly tell yourself to go fuck yourself <laughs> and uh, f the rules. So um, we can go a little bit over. Oh, thank you. Because somebody contacted today telling me, please tell me you're not going to minimize weapons. Uh, on October 7th, and please tell me that you are going to mention the Ara uh, terrorist attack in the 1990s. And I, uh, so I'd love it if we could go a bit over the hour. Yeah. You have to appease your fans, I understand. I hope he remains my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, well, uh, Mira Lewin, uh, the young, uh, she was then the young lady, you know, giving the mm-hmm. testimony, a very important testimony in the 70s. She recently wrote uh, a book called uh, Yossi, the Spy Who Regretted Being a Spy. Um, mm-hmm. And it's about a, a cop who was designated to, to, to infiltrate into the Amya Jewish Center because in the 1990s, because this cop uh, was part of a culture in the police department that believed in the conspiracy theory called Plan Andinia. Plan Andinia was a conspiracy theory that was authored by right-wing anti-Peronists and a Semitic writer who was a very influential professor at the University of Buenos Aires during the last couple of dictatorships called Walter Beverage uh, Allende, nothing to do with Chile's Allende. Mm-hmm. So this man uh, devised the theory that, uh, that, it, that a Jewish plot in Argentina wanted to take over the whole Patagonia, that uh, there was a conspiracy to take over Chile and Argentina. And to, to make these, to make the Argentines non-Jews live like um, the Palestinians, or whatever, or worse, or much worse. 
And so this was a conspiracy theory that was very popular in Argentine nationalist circles and in the police. And um, so, um, so the story of uh, this cop, uh, uh, not a corrupt cop, but a, a spy, is that uh, infiltrated the, the Jewish center, believing that he would find out they were plotting to take over the Patagonia. He leaked a huge amount of information as to the structure and the blueprints of this building. And those blueprints got into the wrong hands and became and enabled the terrorist attack in, uh, I think it was 94, uh, the bombing of the AMIA building in Buenos Aires. That, uh, killed 85 people. This was a 85, you said? Yes. Oh, wow. Uh, it was a huge scandal uh, because um, the presidency of Carlos Saul Menem uh, at the time was faulted, outstanding uh, security. Uh, and so ever since then, there have been no end to intrigues and speculations as to who was really responsible. Um, so we we live in the age in which, you know, like Mataibi is often criticized how uh, New York Times or other newspapers will cite the CIA or the FBI as experts who have the authoritative version mm-hmm. of something. So recently the Mossad said it was Lebanese Hezbollah uh, and uh, as the principal actors. Um, and so that might be the case, but uh, of course Israel has its geopolitical interests because Hezbollah is a very is the most interesting adversary for Israel uh, in mm-hmm. this region. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not denying that that might be the truth, but for years Argentine investigative journalists were also talking about the Syrian trail uh, because mm-hmm. of course uh, um, the presidents of Argentina at the time had put a colonel uh, as a customs officer, a Syrian army colonel who barely spoke Spanish. Uh, Ibrahim al-Ibrahim was the customs officer of the Zayza, one of the customs officials uh, at the top of the food chain, the customs at the Zayza airport. And he was a colonel very close to, married to an Argentine Syrian woman who both very close to Hafez al-Assad. And so uh, Adam Curtis, uh, BBC, claims that Hafez al-Assad was behind a series of, 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 of suicide bombing campaigns. In the West. So there are all kinds of murky questions. And the Amya bombing is a, is a, is a, might never be resolved because it was terribly mishandled. And one of the people who mishandled it was, is, is was the ju- a justice minister who is today um, uh, a very key official in the government of Millet, who often brags that he is a great friend of, of the Jewish people, that he's a future Orthodox Jew, that he is the greatest friend of Israel and Latin America, and so on and so forth. Um, to fully answer your question about, I know this is a lot of information. In that's, hey, that's what we do here. Yeah, but to fully answer your your question about how the connection between this and Israel, uh, well, I think this is, a, of course, a scandal uh, that uh, for, for Israel that I think uh, 
coterie around Netanyahu clearly don't don't care about these people uh, for these were terrorists, even if they have Jewish origins and qualified for citizenship according to the law of the return of the Israeli state. Uh, but I also think that it's very obvious to anyone who's paying close attention that uh, the hostages are not uh, do not seem to be the major concern of the war cabinet, or certainly not of uh, uh, um, uh, Netanyahu. Rather, he seemed to have used. This is my opinion. This is not mm-hmm. mystical, whatever. But he seemed to have uh, used October seventh as a pretext to enforce the ambition of greater Israel. And in that sense, uh, he completely neglected the the quest to get back the hostages. Uh, I think a number of whom are Argentine Israelis or Argentinian tourists who were at the time in Israel. Around, uh, I think nine have been returned. Nine Argentine Israeli hostages have been returned, but there are a few more. Uh, nine hostages, or eight or seven, I'm not sure, are still missing uh, in uh, somewhere in Gaza and might never be returned because of all that rubble might have destroyed hostages. For all we know, uh, there's no reason to rule that out. And of course, uh, I, I don't see them as less important, as more important. I hope that was not a Freudian slip. I don't see them as more important than the 30,000, I mean, uh, Palestinians who uh, have died so so brutally and terribly. Uh, but what I mean to say is that um, just as um, during the regime uh, in Argentina, which was very clearly a philo-Nazi regime, and not the only one in South America that had some cordial relations with Israeli arms. Uh, Uruguay also uh, was doing this, uh, but definitely uh, Uruguay tortured many Jewish people and many of and many Jewish victims in Uruguay experienced a lot of anti-Semitism in their uh, testimonies, but they, they were not wiped off the face of the earth, with one exception. Uh, Eduardo Blyer, whose daughter or granddaughter is in Israel, and who has issued many grievances that documents about her father or grandfather be declassified, that there be justice. But just as the, 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 the disappeared then were a secondary priority, took the backseat to, it seems, to geopolitics, to arms trade, um, uh, and there are all kinds of excuses as to why that happened. It's very clear also that uh, in this current campaign that has destroyed almost all of Gaza, uh, it seems the hostages of these, um, 10 or 12, between 10 and 15 of whom it's not certain are our time citizens as well, including the nephew of a popular, no, the nephew of the popular singer who died was a soldier, but not a hostage. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it's there too. The hostages are the, the best secondary consideration of Meta of of of, of, the, of Netanyahu's coalition. 
Uh, and that's political. it seems to be having some kind of disastrous effects as far as the population. I, again, I've only seen um, a few images, uh, it caught a few stories about Israeli citizens that are furious that their yeah. family members are still being held hostage. They're like, you know, look, you're blowing these people back to the Stone Age. Can you just get my my kid out of there? So even keeping hostages, uh, it's in my lifetime, I've never seen such a bungled uh, uh, strategy before that I could, that I could think of top of my head, where kind of all around the board, everybody's kind of like, "This is bad. This is really bad." Even supporters of Israel, are like, can you just stop bombing them, please? Well, the, their objective is the objective of Netanyahu's coalition. Uh, I am quite certain is is greater greater Israel. So. To, you see, what they're avenging is not October 7th. They're avenging Gush Katif, which was the settlement that, I forget the exact date, it was 2005, the settlement that was evacuated of settlers, you know, and, and there was a big drama about that settlement. Uh, uh, the settlers saw that as an open wound because Netanyahu doesn't really respond to uh, the settlement part of the population, like many of the kidnappings happen in the kibbutzim, which Israel is a very divided society between secular and hyper-religious, and the kibbutzim are regarded as a secular institution par excellence, and uh, Netanyahu is, is a very opposition, and so he knows his electorate, what is it? I think that his electorate is more uh, because he's he's tried to replace Ariel Sharon as patron saint of the settler movement. Gotcha. Sharon went into his coma, and gotcha. I think that uh, uh, the, the, what he's trying to avenge is not October seventh, uh, certainly not the, the hostages. He's not get, trying to get them back. What he's trying to avenge is the evacuation of that settlement that was seen as a major injustice by the settler movement and. Uh, uh, and, and he's doing it. He's promising that there will be many more uh, settlements in Gaza uh, as a revenge against uh, uh, against uh, the, that evacuation, which uh, was, I think, one of the major examples of progress, if there ever was an example of progress in the Israeli-Palestine uh, situation. It was that settlement evacuation, um, which uh, he sees as a he wants to avenge. Uh, that's yeah. what he's seeking to avenge. Yeah. His whole movement is. Um, yeah. Does and I'll ask you this last question uh, while I still have you here. And again, thank you for staying up uh, a lot later. I know it's it's very late where you are now. Uh, People are quite nocturnal in Argentina. You you say that now. You know, are you going to go to sleep right after this is over? No. You're not? I should fuck with you and call you later and see. Hey. <laughs> you know, Arturo sent me a message at 4 a.m. this morning uh, and asked if we were going on in 15 hours. I just want you guys to know that. Sorry, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to wake you up. Uh, I was already awake starting oh. my day. Oh, the workout, the hike. I was already working out and cutting clips 
I won't get into why, but I was already starting my day and I saw that message. Yeah. I was like, this mf is insane. Uh, um, if there is a Trump presidency, um, does this conflict get worse or does it matter who's in office at this point? Which of the two that... that... Oh, does it, it Trump or, or Biden or whoever it, they throw out there for you to vote for? Does it get worse if there's a Democrat or a Republican in office? In Palestine? In, in Israel, Gaza. Yes, yes. Sorry, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, uh, in Israel, Israel, uh, Palestine. No, no, I, I, I can't imagine. Uh, I mean, uh, I think, you know, what people fail to understand about uh, seems Americans seem to, at least American Democrats, they don't seem to notice that Biden preserved the worst aspects of the Trump foreign policy uh, and then added on top of that the worst aspects of the Democrat foreign policy establishment. So uh, maximum pressure on Iran, destroying the Iran nuclear deal, um, which coincided with his vice presidency, Obama's presidency. Uh, strangling Cuba, undoing the opening up to Cuba, um, um, and of course, the Biden immediately made it clear where after Trump moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, which mm-hmm. was, uh, I happens to, I'll be very honest with, with you, uh, I happens to be visiting my very old auntie and very old grand uncle in Jerusalem when Trump announced he was moving the American embassy uh, uh, to Jerusalem. And uh, I, 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 I never, Israel, I was visiting them with uh, an Israeli I was going to translate. Uh, but, you know, uh, I don't know how relevant that is but uh, to this conversation, but uh, Biden uh, announced that he would do nothing to reverse the decision taken yeah. by Trump yeah. to, to the embassy move was celebrated by the settler movement. Mm-hmm. That was a disaster for everyone else. Uh, and I think that, uh, uh, and he preserved the uh, Abraham Accords. And I think that October 7th, uh, the campaign, which uh, horrible things happened, the massacre, it's horrible and there's no reason to uh, uh, shoot up a people party on a beach or anything like that. But uh, the, the objectives of uh, the Palestinian campaign or the Hamas campaign were to uh, undo, to, to take down uh, the Abraham Accords, which were an agreement from the Trump era Biden it's completely unmolested. Uh, 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 and it was an agreement for the staging to simply move on from the Palestinian issue, to leave the Palestinians in their ghettos, uh, in, their part, in their predicament, to forget about the Palestinian issue completely. And I think that uh, Saudi princess at Davos and the Kari prime minister at Davos made it extremely clear that. Abraham Accords are dead, and, uh, and that, that was the objective. 
uh, among other objectives. Uh, so I, I, I think I'm going a bit off topic. But um, uh, in any case, uh, uh, no, I don't believe that Trump or Biden make a real difference, a positive difference. Um, I believe Trump would necessarily, of course, Trump encouraged many of these tendencies yeah. in Israel, but Biden is accommodating them. And Biden is applying, it seems he's applying the playbook he had for Ukraine of unquestioning, you know, anyway, applying that playbook to this. I guess Biden is desperate to have one successful regime change in his presidency. That's the way he sees it. So he wasn't able to um, Afghanistan was a huge embarrassment, the huge mm-hmm. failure. Uh, the Ukraine war was not victorious. So now he thinks, well, if you fail at the macro, try the macro. So the Gaza Strip, it's a tiny outpost. And they and Blinken keep announcing their regime change plans for the Gaza Strip. And that's how they're not seeing it as genocide. They're seeing it as another yet better regime change. They want to get through the door before it ends of term, because otherwise they won't be able to prove to the rest of the world that America is still capable of regime changes. I think that's the American. That's how I read the American geopolitics at play here. Whereas the Israelis are thinking completely different intentions uh, and uh, yeah and I think Argentina will uh, a hysterical mess uh, but more cheerful than past decades mm. is this Malay presidency a one-term presidency um, well we'll see I hope that he is not overthrown by his vice president, who is much closer to the military and much more preferred by the serious elements of the right here in Argentina. Vila Ruel, she's a former lawyer for former dictators or personnel of the dictatorships. Um, she was their defense lawyer. They many defense lawyers. Uh, so she's to the right of Malay. And, Jesus. But yeah, so I, what I'm afraid of, I don't see Malay as a fascist, mm-hmm. but I'm afraid of a repeat of what happened with Isabel Perón, because like Malay, Isabel Perón was regarded as a histrionic figure who could not be taken seriously, but who courted reactionary elements in the military until finally overthrew her. And that, that's the danger I see in Argentina. Uh, that's the danger I see. Yeah. Well, be safe out there in Argentina. His name is Arturo De, S- De Simone. <laughs> Thank you for hanging out with us, Arturo. Thank you. Um, we we have to have you back on the show at some point. Um, maybe when Doug love- comes down here and hangs out with me in Mexico, we'll uh, we'll double up on you. 
I really need to visit Mexico. I really, I really have to go to Mexico once. Yeah, yeah. It's like Argentina with less white people. (laughs) (laughs) Arturo, have a very good night, man. Take it easy. You too. You guys, give it up for Arturo DeSimone. Thank you guys so much for checking this out. If you want to join us for the Champagne Room and hang out, it's very easy. Patreon.com slash Bitterlake presents for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can come and hang out with us in the Champagne Room and have all the uncensored fun. Yes, imagine this mouth is even more uncensored in the champagne room. And I was reading what you guys were saying about me in the chat. Also, if you haven't done it already, please hit like. If you're watching this for the first time and you dug it, hit like, hit subscribe. Those passive gestures go a long way into making sure we can stay on the air, as I like to say. There's always a struggle to keep this thing afloat. But thank you guys so much. <laughs> Damn, this chase that orange. No, I don't have orange. I have no hair. Hair schmear. Um so we will be I'll be in the champagne room by myself and just hanging out with you knuckleheads. Uh tomorrow we'll be talking about my favorite thing in the world. Me and JG Michael will be talking about the golden age of ninja movies. Oh, yes. I figured out a way to do a whole show about ninjas with one of probably, oh, God, I don't know anyone that knows B-film and film in general better than JG. Derek Varn is a close second. But even he has to say, you know, JG knows way too much about B-Cinema. And when I asked JG if he wanted to do a ninja show, he was like, yep. So, won't be a super long champagne room, but we will have fun. Don't worry. MT sent me tons of videos that she would like you guys to see for the champagne room. So, we'll be playing some of those. And again, thank you, Arturo, for hanging out with us. And we are out.